This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers, providing media relations and communications training in Canada and internationally for over 20 years. We help scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through clear, honest, and authentic communication. Find out more at trustmakers.ca. Pollution is the word used for something introduced into the environment that is harmful. The Industrial Revolution brought with it new types and new levels of pollution in our air, land, and water. But there's another kind that arrived with the Information Revolution. Social media posts, discussion forums, emails, videos, and text messages all work tirelessly, relentlessly pumping faulty information into our environment. The information they contain has not been tested or filtered. It is raw information pollution. It is harmful, and it is impossible to avoid. Just as someone with asthma is more susceptible to air pollution, there are many psychological and social factors that can make someone more susceptible to information pollution in the form of conspiracy theories. Researchers continue to explore just how all this works, but as we mentioned in the previous episode of Own the Science, the negative effects are all around us. There are ways to fight the negative effects of information pollution. One of the most important is to develop your critical thinking skills, to think more like a scientist. In science, every finding, every conclusion must be able to be replicated by someone else. If a study's findings can't be repeated, tested, and subjected to intense scrutiny, then it is not accepted. In this way, it is self-correcting. Every claim is put through the ringer. This stands in stark contrast to other ways of understanding the world. A believer in the conspiracy theory that COVID-19 is a hoax just has to claim COVID-19 is a hoax. That person will immediately find a community online that will reaffirm that theory with fiction and fallacy. In science, anyone who claims anything needs to produce repeatable, consistent, and reliable evidence. And the burden of proof is with the person making the claim. The more extraordinary your claim, the more of that quality evidence you're going to need. Just saying something and having others say it back to you is not enough. It is not enough for science and it should not be enough for the average person trying to make their way in a world overwhelmed with information pollution. In this episode of Own the Science, we continue our exploration of clear, critical thinking. Each day, we make many decisions about our health, safety, and the environment. From the food we eat and staying cyber safe, to dealing with public health emergencies and dealing with climate change. Each month, the Own the Science podcast will reveal how often little-known public sector science has a profound impact on Canadians' day-to-day lives. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Own the Science. I'm your host, John Nelson McKay. And I'm your host, Andrea Morantz. In this episode of Own the Science, we'll tell the story of an airline pilot who suddenly realizes in the middle of his flight 
that his Boeing 767 aircraft is out of fuel. But first, we present the second of the two-part interview Andrea conducted with critical thinking expert, Dr. Christopher DiCarlo. Now, you've developed a a course on how to talk to conspiracy theorists. So tell me a little bit about that. That's sort of taking this discussion to its extreme, right? It does. Um, So I was commissioned by a a CEO in in Toronto, one one of my clients, and he wanted to do a group project. He's a marketing and branding uh, company, and he's very interested in, in the work that I've done in critical thinking. And he wanted me to develop research. And he had asked me, what do you find a good application of critical thinking in a contemporary issue right now? And of course, this was at the beginning of the pandemic. And I said, well, you know, there's a huge spike in conspiracy theories. But what has always interested me is nobody has written for families that have members or friends or any kind of relatives that are actually conspiracy theorists. Nobody has written a book for them to better equip them to have a conversation with them because we can always talk about crazy Dave, Uncle Dave at Thanksgiving who believes that aliens are communicating to him in some ways or whatnot. And we can just kind of write that off as an eccentricity. But we often, these are family members and we often care deeply about these people And nobody is doing any research or was, in my estimation, doing any research about let's learn as much as we can about what goes on in the mind of a conspiracy theorist. Let's look at all of the data we can gather in terms of who has said what worldwide. And then let's collate all that and try to package it in a way that helps the average person have that conversation. And so it's been a fascinating journey, and it, it resulted in this course uh, that Ryerson asked me to, to teach uh, based on the, on the same title of the, of the book. And now the book is in its final stages of editing and should hopefully go to, uh, to publication in a few months. So where do you start with somebody like that? If, if mm-hmm. someone, it's almost alarming when someone that you know suddenly espouses a view that seems really, really extreme. Mm-hmm. And I think most people kind of, their, their immediate reaction is to please change the subject and never go near it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But where do you start? Well, great question. So what I've done is I've created a checklist because we've been able to develop a profile a conspiracy theorist profile checklist so that individuals can mark the boxes that most evidently apply to their the individual in their lives. And then that helps them better situate where that individual might fall on a spectrum that I developed that determines the level of belief in that particular conspiracy uh, theory or, or several, and also the degree of danger either to themselves or to someone else in having that particular belief. And so families can then say, well, this person falls somewhere along these lines. What that gives families the capacity to do is to try to determine to what extent the conspiracy theorists' issues are 
predominantly uh, neurologically based. Mm -hmm. uh, that is to say, are they are they uh, facing mental health issues? Mm -hmm. And to what extent can this be dealt with on a purely behavioral manner? So, for example, we find that uh, narcissism skews fairly high in conspiracy theorists. Okay. We also find that, unfortunately, it's extremely difficult to convince a narcissist of any ways in which they could potentially be misguided in some of their views. Mm -hmm. And it's for that reason that one of the sections of the book is called uh, When to Shut Up, because there will be conspiracy theorists that you cannot reach, and that's unfortunate. And what I mean by that is either they're unreachable because they have a genetic predisposition like narcissism, uh, personality disorder, mm -hmm. or they have other organic uh, neurological uh, factors, say schizophrenia, or other types of neuroses, where you can only do so much with discussion before you're the person is going to require a, a form of medication to try to bring back a greater balance of the, the neurotransmitters in, in their brains. And so that's, that's a very difficult thing, you know, for individuals to, to sometimes determine because it can be very personal. But the issue is we have to deal with this uh, issue on some level. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be educated. You need to know that your conspiracist the predominant problem is an underlying mental health issue. And if you address that, and if that can be in any ways helped or facilitated in some ways, uh, medically or otherwise, then it can make the task of dealing with those unusual thoughts and ideas and whatnot much easier. Mm -hmm. if, if the person is just eccentric, right? If they're, if they're just right. like, oh, you know, I just think this because of this or whatnot. They have no real underlying mental health issues. They're not a narcissist. They're not uh, schizotypal. You know, any of these uh, underlying uh, psychological uh, factors, then it's, it can be just purely behavioral. It's, it's a much easier job in terms of having that conversation mm -hmm. and, and moving forward. Right. And, and I like the idea that you, you think about what the danger, what the level of danger mm -hmm. of these beliefs are first. That's because, right. you know, it's true. There are um, things that might be unsettling for the person hearing it, but really it's harmless. <laughs> so yeah. so, so uh. there may be times when, when just changing the subject is, is perfectly adequate response, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so let's talk about um, how we put some of these concepts into our everyday life. For, for example, I want to know if having several cups of coffee every morning is good or bad for me. Mm -hmm. I have heard, I have read, looked on Google and found things that say, oh, caffeine is good for you in these ways. It protects these parts of your body and it's healthy. Right. And others say, no, any amount of caffeine is not good for you and you shouldn't do it. How do I use critical thinking to decide? That's, that's another great question. So what you're after there is, is science, is nutritional science. And so you need to determine the most reliable sources. 
So if you get everything from WebMD, then everything's going to kill you. <laughs> and right. if, you know, so in my books, I provide reliable website sources for news information, uh, health, even law to some degree. And these are great sites that have some of the world's best experts. So the Mayo Clinic might be one. Mm-hmm. And you can go to the Mayo Clinic site and you can look up practically anything in there and it will give you all kinds of references to the latest studies that have been done. So you would you would do a, an internal search on caffeine uh, effects on humans and it would give you a, a list of the latest uh, studies and what their findings are. I mean, that's what I do as an academic in order to get information that I'm going to give students in a university class, for example, because well, again, I'm biased, but to me, there's not, there's no more important job in the world than teaching because you're given the responsibility of imparting information onto the next generation. And that's really, really important. So you want to make sure you get the best, most reliable and relevant information you can from the best possible sources. So you would have to then do a bit of a search, see, you know, and you could start very, you know, in a cursory manner seeing what's out there and then depending on as i say how deep into the onion you really want to go on this stuff it can take you to you know some of the most detailed and professional sites in fact you know there's google scholar it's just a search for academics it's a different search than the average person would use but it would give you nothing but scholarly articles on the effects of caffeine on mm-hmm. humans and once you you go through a you know a certain amount of of information, you would then have to figure out individually for yourself well, how do I how comfortable do I feel with caffeine? Am I am I okay with this amount? Is it making me jittery? What happens when I don't have it? Right? Am I addicted to caffeine? Right? Am I getting headaches when I don't have it? Does it help me in other ways? So it's a cost benefit analysis. Do I enjoy the flavor and the taste of it and the aroma and everything else? It's an aesthetic layer added to the onion. So after you go through all of these uh, different ways of analyzing yourself and the effects of caffeine, you should be able to come up with a fairly reliable and responsible conclusion as to which direction you want to go in. It's, it's interesting that you talked about the, the aesthetic appeal. Some people have complained that that critical thinking sort of sucks all that magic and wonder from the world that it it leaves us with a very cold cut and dried you know evidentiary based uh view of the world mm-hmm. what's your response to that well i can i can understand that and i can certainly sympathize with that and there there are times when i turn my my critical thinking superpowers off and i don't have to when i'm hiking with my dog piero and there's a beautiful sunset and it's an amazing scene and it's a wonderful aesthetic experience i don't have to critically think about it i can just enjoy that moment for what it is without having to critically analyze every aspect of my life but that requires that meta capability of 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 doing that and and knowing that there are times when the critical thinking antennae better go up 
and you really are going to need to use this skill set. And there are other times when you just shut it down and just say, enjoy the company of friends or, you know, watch a comedy and, and laugh or, or my, my son, Jeremy, sometimes says, why do you get excited watching a football game sometimes? American football, U.S. football. And I go, because I allow myself to do, to do that. And he goes, what? And I go, you want to see some? Yeah. Okay. For the rest of this game, you won't hear a word out of me. <laughs> and I just watched it again. <laughs> no no because, cheering, no yelling. <laughs> well, because I know, I know in my mind that that game means absolutely nothing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's not going it, to, they're not, they're not out there curing cancer. They're not out there solving the crisis in Ukraine. They're, they're trying to get a ball to go 100 yards and then pass a line, and then they get points for it. It's an entirely fabricated game. But I allow myself to let it emotionally affect me because life can be passionate. And you got to remember, Spock was half human. So we exactly. sometimes, right? We want to be able to experience that. We don't want to suppress that. We don't want to shut that down. Right? We want to be able to allow ourselves to have that emotional capacity because that's the time for it. Or you're at a great concert or mm -hmm. you know, you're seeing your, your son get married or whatever. It, those are the times you say, I'm going to allow myself to be emotional. And of course, the ancient skeptics knew this and they said, of course, we're going to be emotional. And that's perfectly normal in being a human being. Why? Why would you want to suppress that? It's it's a part of the human experience. So basically, that's that's what I do. I don't have to. I don't have to be. But where's the fun in that, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Christopher, thank you so much for this. Oh, my pleasure. Most of us have heard of the discovery of insulin by Banting and Best, but that's not the only story from Canada's history involving science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. In each episode of OS, we'll tell you some of the stories of some of the others. It was a lazy summer evening on the shores of Lake Winnipeg. Three young boys were riding their BMX bikes on the decommissioned runway of an old Royal Canadian Air Force base. That old runway had been converted into a race car track, but the day's racing events had already come to an end. The boys rode and yelled and laughed. Soon they would go back to the campers their parents had parked beside the racetrack. What the boys didn't see seemingly hovered in the air behind them, silently fading into view and growing bigger by the second. Its wings appeared to be two giant arms soundlessly reaching down to grab the boys and their bikes. It was a Boeing 767 airliner. The pilot of this silent airplane could see the terrified looks on the boys' faces as they turned their heads to see the underside of a passenger plane bearing down on them. It was July 1983, and Air Canada Flight 143 had run out of fuel at 40,000 feet. It was, in effect, a giant glider, and was coming in for an emergency landing. 
The boys veered out of the way as the plane touched down. The pilot hit the brakes and two of the tires on the rear landing gear blew up. The nose landing gear had not locked into place, so the plane's nose slammed onto the asphalt, bounced, and then scraped along the ground, helping to slow the plane down. The boys, everyone else on the ground, and the passengers and crew of Flight 143 were all unharmed. They were all now part of a story that would be remembered as that of the Gimli Glider. That story is a lesson on the perils of unclear, careless thinking and the power of calm, clear thinking. The plane had run out of fuel due to a series of errors on the ground that revolved around the conversion of pounds to kilograms. The result? A plane that had only half the fuel it needed to reach its destination in Edmonton, Alberta. So, as a pilot, what do you do when you run out of gas at 40,000 feet? Fortunately for everyone involved, the pilot and co-pilot remained calm and got to work. They started to do the math based on their speed and rate of descent. The numbers told them they could not reach the Winnipeg airport. That left only one other option, the old airbase at Gimli. As they approached, they realized they were coming in too fast to land safely. The pilot had previously trained as a glider pilot, and this knowledge was about to save lives. He performed a maneuver used by glider pilots called a forward slip. This is when the pilot turns the plane to go somewhat sideways to increase the drag and reduce its speed and altitude. It is a maneuver used for small gliders and is certainly not intended to be done when flying a large commercial passenger plane. But it worked. The Gimli Glider is infamous in aviation history. It is a story that begins with miscalculation and a sinking, horrified realization that you're about to fall out of the sky. But it is also a story of problem-solving, using mathematical calculations, dispassionate thinking, and the novel application of existing knowledge to avert almost certain tragedy. It is a story of clear thinking. That concludes Season 1, Episode 4 of Own the Science. Until next time, remember, it's yours. This life-changing science belongs to all Canadians. So always remember, you actually do own the science. This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers.ca, helping scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through authentic communication. To find out more about this podcast and the subjects discussed, visit ownthescience.ca. There you can also pitch your story ideas and learn about our sponsorship opportunities. You can subscribe to Own the Science anywhere you listen to podcasts. To reach us on social media, join our Discord channel or follow us on Twitter at Own the Science. Hosting and research, Andrea Morantz. Post-production and voiceover, Julie Sommerfeld. Coordination and scheduling, Brenda Bookbinder. Original music by Aidan Gray. Created, written, and hosted by John Nelson McKay. Own the Science is produced by Trustmakers out of the Center 42 Studios in Ottawa. Find out more at trustmakers.ca.